All right, this is episode 16 of that One Vatos podcast, and my next guest is a Kent's Five anchor reporter. The man serves on the National Association of Black Journalists Committee. I the San Antonio chapter. The San Antonio chapter, yes. Um, you can find him at your local Hidden Gems, um, devouring food and giving you some awesome reviews. My next guest is Mr. Marvin Hurst. How are you? Thank you. I am. I'm good today. <laughs> good today. Um, so, what got you into journalism? You know, I th- I think to myself that well, number one, destiny. Mm. Uh, number two uh, is an accident. I, it felt like it was accidental. Mm-hmm. Like journalism wasn't what I thought I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to do advertising. Um, yeah, that's that's different. I thought I wanted to do advertising. I had an English teacher who told me that I couldn't write well. Oh, wow. I knew she was wrong, but and I didn't buy into it, but I heard it, and I was just like, well, I want to do advertising. It looked like it's fun, creative, that kind of thing. Um, I got recruited by Grambling State University in Grambling, Louisiana. It's in North Louisiana. It is east of Shreveport and west of Monroe. So it is, is in that area. And I started writing for the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, this is really serious stuff. And um, while I'm into it, I want to do something that's a little bit more fun. Mm-hmm. So I went from that into college radio, which is kind of where I thought I'd found my sweet spot. Uh, but I was producing television on the side. And it just so happens that the television portion started to grow. I never really wanted to be in TV. I'm not one of those people. Oh, yeah. wow. I wanted to do something else. Um, so where were you from originally? I'm originally from Milwaukee. Milwaukee. I've lived in Chicago, Atlanta, and Mississippi. Wow. Uh, how do you adapt to those different environments destiny again right because in this career you have to move around true so uh mississippi i guess it was wasn't was an adjustment because i i lived in anguilla mississippi which is where my grandmothers are from and they stay right across the street from each other the town is probably about as big as a you know as a notepad uh but it was a it was a good place good family values taught me the basics that I needed to know uh, and gave me a place to incubate into who I am today. And who are you today? You know, I think Marvin Hurst has developed, has always been a person who has told the truth and has not been afraid to tell the truth. I've always been the bull in the china shop. And sometimes uh, I'm too much of a bull in the china shop. So I've had to learn how how to pull that back. I'm a person who likes to help people. Uh, I'm compassionate. I am spiritual. I am uh, giving. I'm also very private, but I'm learning uh, through social media to give up, you know, those parts that we think are so sacred to us because I find that those parts really help people. So I'm I'm my mother's only child, but my father has uh, two other children, so I'm the eldest of his children. So I'm a big brother, I'm an uncle, 
Um, I have a significant other. She lives in Ohio. And let me see, who else am I? (laughs) Um, At the core, I think I'm I'm a God-fearing person who wants to to do the right thing and live life to its fullest. Mm. You seem, uh, where did you learn? You said you, you know, they taught you that your, your grandmothers taught you the basics. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what comes out of the basics is, you know, you being a compassionate human being, is, you know, is that where the bare minimum basics that you learn? I, I think, you know, you, you can, you can start there or you can start with being courteous to people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, learning to have some sense of responsibility around the house that you can learn to take care of yourself. I'm not one of those, although I have a significant other. I think one of the parts that infuriates her the most is that I'm so self-sufficient. Like, I don't need her to cook. I don't need her to do my laundry. I mean, all of those things were taught to me mm-hmm. by my uh, my grandmothers. And um, what else did I learn from my grandmother? So much. Was there like a, a certain chore or a tax that was so simple, yet it taught you an extremely valuable lesson. I can tell you what I hated the most. Okay. (laughs) I can tell you what I hated the most. And maybe out of that, there is a lesson. So uh, Mississippi, of course, is the South. Anguilla, small, rural area. Uh, So there had to be a garden, right? People... um, hulled peas and canned peaches and plums and turned them into jellies and that kind of thing. So I, I was exposed to that kind of lifestyle. So it was getting up and having to go down in the morning time and, you know, stand under the tree as they shook the tree and the peaches came down and you put them in a bucket and you did that all day and then coming that afternoon interrupting your play you know, and sitting there and hulling the peas with grandmother or either during the winter time when, you know, grandfather water wood for the fireplace of the wood stove, you know, you'd have to go out into the woods and you spend your whole Saturday out there collecting wood. So I hated those times uh, at that particular point. But I've learned since then, you know, if if you don't get out there and hustle, you don't eat. Right. Mm. That's what they were teaching me. Yeah. You know, um, there are ways of doing things that don't necessarily mean that because we didn't have HEBs where I lived. They didn't exist. So, you know, instead of driving 45 miles to the next grocery store, to, you know, just to get some vegetables, this is what was our way of doing it. So the ingenuity of survival, I think, was the lesson that I learned and all those things that I hated to do, <laughs> especially hated picking okra. Okra. What's okra? Oh, you never had okra? No. So okra looks like it's... A, you're going to have to Google it to get a better... But it's about this long. It can be longer. Uh-huh. It looks... Uh, it can be kind of hard. It has like a slimy inside to it. And when you're trying to pick it off of a tree without your bare hand, you're definitely going to end up itching. So we would either put on gloves. If we ran out of gloves, we put on tube socks and pull, pull the okra <laughs> off of the bushes. <laughs> wow. Um, aside from doing chores, um, what did you do for fun as a kid? You know, the, the interesting part, I, I said I was going to write a book about this, is that small towns gave me an opportunity to write. 
Now, at the time, a lot of people thought, oh, I think he's being a little mischievous. But because it's so boring around there, yeah. it gave me an opportunity to hone in on people's stories. Mm. And I used to take loose-leaf paper and just start writing stuff about people, wow. like the latest gossip or whatever it was. I would start crafting those stories, and I would start passing them around the school. As a matter of fact, they kind of like fed off of them. Like, who are you writing about today? So I guess, in a sense, that that was kind of my birth in journalism. Uh, how old are you at this time? Oh, gosh. I was a uh, senior in high school. Wow. Senior in high school. Yeah, I kept the school in an uproar because I always had the juice. <laughs> Did it ever get you in trouble? It got me called to the office a couple of times. <laughs> but, you know, my principal was so understanding, especially since he was a character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned earlier that... A teacher, you said an English teacher, told you that you couldn't write. Right. Uh, was this in high school? This was in high school. Um, and I knew that I could write. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't think that I was some virtuoso or was so proficient that I was the next James Baldwin or anything like that. But mm -hmm. I knew that I could construct together a sentence and, and create some ideas in a fashion that people would understand it. With this, she was just like, yeah, I think you need to go into advertising because you can't write. Wow. Um, at that time, how did, how did you react to that emotionally? Or well, I wasn't, I, I wasn't devastated, and I did not set out to prove her wrong because instinctively I knew that she was just trying to steer me off the path. Mm. Um, I thought to myself, you know, what a cruel thing to say to a kid in high school. Mm -hmm. You know, what she should have done, even if that was my sh shortcoming, was to redirect me mm -hmm. to the path that I should have been on and say, you know, yeah, your, writing, your writing's pretty decent, but what I see your talent in is this, instead of you can't write. Yeah, wow. Um, wow, that's, that's crazy. Um, so when you're writing these, these things... Um, how did you um, what how did how did you practice to become a better writer? Were you what kind of you know stuff were you digesting? So there was a portion in my life where you know I, I told you about the different cities that I lived in. Mm -hmm. So the Atlanta Journal Constitution had a column called the Purple Cow. I don't know if they still have it now. So the Purple Cow was kind kind of like an advice column, like where teens would write in to this particular teen and that teen would answer the questions. So my mother, she was an AJC uh, reader, of course, and she thought that I was a good fit for that. So she sent me to a, like a publishing class that I took in the summertime, and, and that teacher thought I was pretty good. Thank you, English teacher, who didn't think I could write. Um, <laughs> But she thought I was pretty good. So I was on track to becoming um, the next Purple Cow Kid when I moved to Chicago. Wow, that's, that's awesome. Right. Um, so from high school, do you go, you go straight to Louisiana? Mm-hmm. Um, were, you, were you ready for that? Like just I was. When I graduated from high school, uh, I took a break. I didn't immediately go. Okay. What, what, what is it that they call it now? There's a word for when you don't immediately go to college. Uh, my parents thought it was loafing, 
but I, I, I told him I had been in school for 12 years. I just, just give me the fall semester out. I'll go in the spring. Give mm-hmm. me a break. You know, give, give me a chance to, to take a breather, reset my brain. And they thought that I was going to fall off, and I didn't. Do you think if you don't take that break, you know, your path goes in a different direction? Or you think, you know, you're still going to get to, because it is your destiny, like you mentioned earlier. Right. I think it depends on the individual. Um, You really have to keep a close eye on that person. And I can certainly understand their concern. You know, here he has from May until January. I mean, what is he going to do? You know, and in that time, does he start thinking more about money than he does about education? And um, I'd never... There was never a second thought to me. I, I wanted the college experience, and mm-hmm. I knew I was going to get it. I just wanted to take a break, and I did. Um, did your parents go to college or any family members? My mother went to college. My okay. father did not. My um, mother went to the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee, Okay, I believe. Yeah. Oh, so you mean everything's up north for you guys? Yeah. My mother got a degree in zoology. She wanted to be a doctor. Wow. So she started off in that. Oh, yeah, you should see her handwriting. It matches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So when you get to college, uh, what was your college experience like initially? You know, you're, you're living in the South now. Um, you're, you just came off this, this break that you had. Uh, what's 18-year-old you, 19-year-old you feeling? Like he was tossed into a world that he had no idea existed it was just it was such a renaissance if you will in in students and talent you know um charles blow from the new york times he was at school during the time that i was there uh erica badu i don't know if you're familiar with her yes yeah so she was she was erica wright at the time Mm -hmm. erica was there and i did a little theater so we did some theater together i wrote for charles had this magazine at our student newspaper it was a project it was called Raz and I remember this crazy article that uh, I wrote for him Um, so it was just it was so interesting to have those kinds of people at the school and going through the experience and discovering your voice Mm -hmm. Uh, you know sometimes some days you find that you're all over the place some days you find that while you're well-intentioned your uh your energy is all over the place, you yeah. know. Instead of focusing it in, being nicer, it's just full steam ahead. I want it, I want it now. That's you know, that's how we were. But um we were a very strong student body and um it's a it's a time if ever there was a time in my life that I would go back and relive, it would be the Grandland State years. Oh, um you mentioned finding your voice. Was it something that you realized or was it something that someone else pointed out to you? I I think that I had it. I just, I felt so many people were trying to steer me in directions mm. that were advantageous for them that I had to truly step back and, and find out where that voice should go. Mm. You know, um, because once I'm committed to getting something done, I get it done. Yeah. I get it done. And and they knew that. And it just, at that time, it was definitely take no prisoners. Wow. 
Um, so when you finish college, where do you go from there? I was confused. I was very confused. I didn't know. Okay, what do I do? I've been trained in public relations. I can write for the newspaper. I can do radio. I can do television. I really want to get into the record business because that sounds like it's a cool thing to do. You know what I mean? Parties, wine and dine, executives, you know, just try to get the record played, you know, cozy up to some artists and travel, tour. It sounded like the life. But that's when television shows me. That was the job that I got. Mm. This job I got was the first job I got. And I was like, okay, that's the one I'm taking. Yeah. Do you think it's important for journalists to venture all avenues of journalism? You you dabbled everything. I think it's important because look at what journalists do today. We do everything. You know, yes. There is no such thing as... Only print people do print anymore, right? Print people are breaking stories, and they're breaking stories that are now, they are putting their faces on television, or they're putting their faces on digital. They're they're going beyond those quiet headlines, you know what I mean? And they're having to put their faces out there, even if it makes them uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. right? So I don't know if, you know, it was, I, I guess, credited to God that I just felt like, it seemed like I was indecisive, but I felt like I needed to do more things. I just kept getting bored doing one thing. Oh, I, I totally get that. Yeah, you know what I mean? You <laughs> no, get, you get exactly locked you into mean. it and, okay, I got the formula for this. I know where this can take me, but should I just stick with this one thing? Because I have the ability to do more than one thing. Yeah. Did writing... This is my opinion. I feel like writing is the foundation to a lot of things. And once you get writing down, you can go anywhere. Pass the plate around, preacher. I'm, I'm, I'm about to give you a... <laughs> I will put my money in for that collection. You're absolutely right. Writing is the foundation for everything. If you can write, you can, you can do anything. Yeah, and I always tell folks that. I'm like, even... I, this, this gentleman had me on his podcast um, a couple of days ago. And I told him, I was like, even if... Even though we don't physically write, you know, if you're applying for, it doesn't matter what field you're in, you have to compose a cover letter, you have to compose a resume, compose an email when you're sending that stuff out. Like, you're, you're writing it, and it's important. And people, I don't know, I just, it just kind of frustrates me <laughs> as a writer. <laughs> I, I get you completely. I, you know, uh, in, in this field, we get a lot of documents, a lot of letters, a lot of emails sometimes that we have to fight to get, right? Yes. So once we fight to get them and you're looking at the sentence structure sometimes and you're looking at people who get paid a lot of money. A lot of money. A lot of money. PIOs. Right. And you wonder sometimes, you're like, what? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, <laughs> writing, I think, I think is, is definitely the foundation for everything. Everyone needs to know to know how to write, no matter what you do. So when that TV opportunity comes, where, where is this at? This is in Alexandria, Louisiana. I really enjoyed my time at KALB-TV in Alexandria, Louisiana. There was a competing station there, but, I mean, it's just like we could turn off our lights and beat them. <laughs> um, nice. But it was a good station for me to go and learn how mm-hmm. to become a television journalist, develop some good habits. Uh, because they, they, they teach you things in school 
but then they don't teach you everything because you, there's not a class on how to cover a, a governmental meeting or read an agenda and figure out on the agenda what is the news story, right? You just don't learn that in class. So um, this is where I learned. My first beat, I was the governmental reporter. Wow. I was a governmental reporter. And then all of a sudden it just was crime and government and then crime and government and they wanted me to be the morning anchor and so many other things. Um, I always talk to folks who cover crime, um, how they take care of themselves because there's a lot of trauma that can come out of covering crime at mm-hmm. times. Um, how did you take care of yourself? Um, I don't want to say I blocked it out. Um, there were fewer times that I was affected. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that I'm inhuman. Yeah. Um, I got the emotional part of it, but I knew that I had to have a job. And I think when you go into it so young, uh, in my case anyway, you file that away. Mm. You file that away. You don't store it and go back and, you know, um, kind of relive it all the time. Yeah. I think the time that affected me the most was during the uh, hunt for the South Louisiana serial killer in Baton Rouge. So we had two serial killers at the time. We had one that was killing prostitutes, of course. Um, no one really cared about that because you know how selective we can be when it comes to media coverage because people didn't think they that there was a sympathy factor for the prostitutes. Yeah. Of course, once he started... The second serial killer started killing girls at Louisiana State University. It became an issue, right? Yeah. So um, Carrie Yoder, who was a graduate student, her um, her mentor and um, graduate instructor and her boyfriend wanted to do an interview, but they wanted to do it in the trees, in the swamp. So I thought, well, this is different. Yeah. So... There we go out to the trees and we sit there and they share their emotions in the trees. And it was something about sitting with them in the trees. Like I, I could feel the heaviness coming off of them. And I, I mean, I had done Charlotte, um, Charlotte Pace was one of the victims. I think Charlotte Murray Pace. Um, and Charlotte had been stabbed like an incredible amount of times. It was just really, really vicious murder. But I was not as affected by her murder as I was by um, Carrie's murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when I realized, I was like, man, we file away a whole lot. And so I tried I tried not to keep it uh, center mind, front of mind, back of mind. I just cover it. If there's something I can do to help that family or help that case, I put myself in a position to do that. But I, I just, it's like a butterfly to me. I let it go. Wow. Um, so at what point in your career do you um, transition away from crime and um, just these local issues? So I, I guess I still do some crime, but not as much anymore because I, I've reached a point where it's just like how many how many more dead bodies can I see? Yeah. How many more sexual assaults can I cover? How many more fires? 
unless they absolutely need me to run on those kinds of things, it's time for me to pass that baton on to somebody else. Yeah. You know what I mean? If I'm going to do crime, I want to do a crime story in a more meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to the, you know, crime du jour. Uh, my boss had the idea for the food segment, if that's what you're asking about. That was certainly not my idea. Uh. <laughs> I did not think that that was the path that I needed to go. But um, he was just like, well, you know, what do you think about doing this food segment? And it it was born. He was like, just has to be local. Get recommendations from people. You make up the rules on the way. Wow. And we just, I just created it with... Uh, my then photographer, Jean Dela Cruz, and we, we kind of built it up. Um, what year was this when that happened? Four years ago. Four years ago. And you arrived in San Antonio 2004? December 2004. started the day after Christmas. There wow. were flurries, snow flurries coming down. I was like, in San Antonio? <laughs> my memory's pretty good. Yeah. Wow. So when you arrived in San Antonio, um, what was your first, um, what was your initial reaction to the city? I thought that the skyline should have been bigger. <laughs> <laughs> That's That was my thought. I was like, where's the rest of downtown? Yeah, our downtown's super underwhelming. <laughs> and I was just like, man. And then once I started living here, I got an opportunity to, um, to really start respecting um, the preservation Mm-hmm. and uh, the respect for history and culture and how much that means to the city. And I understood. Wow. Um, so you were still covering crime, right, when you arrived here? You are covering crime. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, gosh, yes. Overnights, that's, that's where I was for wow. 12 years. That's all we had. That's all we had. There were I did more sexual assaults and... More shootings and breakings and every, I mean, I lived life on the scanner, run, run, run to the next shot. And I just, okay, we'll shoot a look live. I, somebody else has been stabbed. Let's, let's go to the, another, uh, to the next one. Yeah. Um, there were some really, really good moments uh, in the morning time. There was a guy who was accused of biting his baby's ear. And so he bonded out of the magistrate's office. You know, you get arrested, then you have to go before the magistrate, and magistrate reads you your charges, and you bond out. So he walks out of jail, and I lie. Sir, do you mind talking? He says, no. And they just cleaned out a whole block, and we just chatted live on air. Uh, things like that wow. uh, were very unique in the morning. Um. At any point in your TV career, did you miss um, just strictly writing, or because you're still writing, technically speaking, you're still writing because you're—I mean, you're in TV—you um, weren't missing it as much. Well, you know that the television writing is different from from the kind of writing yeah. that you do. So uh, back in the day, when they started talking about confluence, you remember that old word, right? Mm-hmm. The merging of of television and what was then, they were calling it the super, super information highway, which we know as the internet, um, I was very happy to get the opportunity to write articles again. Awesome. Even though it was another step in the workflow, it was different from television writing is more conversational, mm-hmm. it's more contextual. Um, web articles, as with print articles, gives you an opportunity to add some more texture and depth to it. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, so what kind of stuff do you do you read now? 
Do I read? Yeah. Like, I'm all over the place. It's just almost like... So I have a commons book that's sitting on my coffee table. I started off reading that, and I thought it was going to be a lot more exciting. Yeah. But it just, it just, I don't know, it didn't become a page turner to me. Um, I have, what is the book, the last book that Oprah put out? I have that one. Those are shelved for, that one's shelved for the holiday. I'm going to sit down and read that one. Nice. I read the Bible probably more than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, always reading articles. Read lots of uh, the Washington Post, nice. New York Times, some USA Today, mm-hmm. some Bleacher Report. <laughs> um, so you're a sport? Yeah. Okay. I'm all over. The, I tell you, I am all over the place. Uh, I do. Some entertainment news, because entertainment news can be downright silly sometimes. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just so trivial. But, I mean, it's what they do. Um, so I'm all over the place. Awesome. Um, talking about Bleacher Report, what, is, what specifically do you look for in a, in a Bleacher Report? Like, is there a team that you're just looking to see covered or a certain sport? No. I, you know what? I'm, I'm, here's what gets me. I'm a headline reader, so that, mm. that push alert. When it comes out, if it doesn't speak to me, then I'm just, when I see it, I just immediately I'll stop and yeah. I'll go into it if it's interesting. Yeah. And then if I have some downtime, like usually on Sundays, I'll sometimes sit down and either catch up on what what's on Netflix or DVR, watching the football games, and then I'll try to expand into a little reading. Nice. Um, segue back into your um, the opportunity that you have now for the last four years. Um, do you remember the first um, segment that you ever did as being like the, the food guy? The, the food guy. guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, Ray's. Oh, man. Yeah, it was Ray's. It was fried 19, food. Yeah. 19th Street in Castroville. Yes, That's it was hood. Ray's. 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 Ray's was the very first one. Ray's was the first one. Everybody loves Raymond. Was that the second one? That's on the south side, way on the south side. Yeah. And I think we went to New Berlin for the third one. Okay. Yeah. Um, what was your favorite dish from Ray's? I can't remember. I can't remember. As I'm thinking about it, because mm-hmm. I was trying to picture the, because they brought out tons of food. I do remember that. Yeah. I can't remember anything that was, I think it was, was it the onion rings that I liked? Oh. I think it was the onion rings. Yeah. Yeah. What's your, like if you were to do a top five food spots in San Antonio, what would it be? Oh, today? Yeah. Um, I would go, if I was going barbecue, I would go Blackboard Barbecue. Okay. Which is out in the boonies, but it's a wonderful chef and his wife who are from the East Coast who came down. They've done high end stuff and they developed this restaurant and they do very different things with barbecue and barbecue sides. I like them. Uh, I like Chef Andrew Weissman's Mr. Juicy. That is like my new burger place. Mm That is really good. So if I had to do, because I'm, I'm trying to do a mix mm-hmm. here, um, 
I'm kind of here and there about Thai food. I don't think I've found the Thai food place yet. Yeah. Um, I'm really beginning to search for a good Vietnamese place. And... Oh gosh, there's so many places that are so good. Like I can, like Mimo's Bakery and the Cinnamon Rolls and... Oh gosh, I could just—I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. It just depends. Like, if I'm out that way, I can, you know, out in Selma, I could do Mia Marcos and the pizza. Have you ever had their pizza before? With no, the, I haven't. With the hot honey on it. The hot. Yes, honey. you are not living, my friend. You need, to go, <laughs> you need to go have a slice of that, or the last slice pizza, or Julian's. I like Julian's and. Um, there's so many different places. It just depends on what mood I'm in. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Um, you mentioned earlier that, you know, your teacher, your English teacher, that told you that you um, you couldn't write. And you all, and then you kind of said she should have went about it this way. You're a part of um, the San Antonio Association of Black Journalists. Um, and you kind of... You're doing the exact opposite of what she did. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you get involved with that? So um, I was asked to join. I, when I first got here, as a matter of fact, I went to like wow. their Christmas party. And uh, I was asked to join. I joined. I found myself becoming um, a mentor. I believe in mentoring. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a workplace mentor Ship program that we do. We've been following kids through communities in school for this is the fourth year, so the class 2020, they'll be getting ready to graduate. Wow. Um, so, um, speaking in the terms of mentoring and, and journalism, um, I always tell kids who want my help, I said, they, they come with terms. I'm going to be honest with you. Number one, and number two, I'm going to be tough on you mm-hmm. because I want you to come out of this experience and be able to handle real world experience. Like this is not a fluff experience at all. If you can handle that, then I will help you out. There are people who have said yes, who I've helped. And there are people who have said yes, who after one critique, they were gone. Wow. How do you, um, when did you figure out your identity as a mentor and how you're going to operate? I think it's an innate thing. I've always, it just, to me, if if you're not helping people, you're not living out your purpose. I'm mm. I'm not here to, to live for Marvin. Yes, it is my life. I am assigned to it. But everything that I do is to help someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, I earn the money and I do the journalism part of it. But if I keep my eye just focused on my career and just not look right or left to try to help someone, then what have I truly done? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I wrote a few good stories, won an Emmy or so. Um, but who have I truly helped with the platform that I have? That's that's the truly important part. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're, you've developed this reputation, and it's, it's San Antonio specifically. Like, you have a community that just, like, adores you and they they support your work mm-hmm. um you ever think about that i don't i forget about it i mean to me it's like i, I tell people this analogy all the time I, it's like i 
I flip burgers for a living. I just happen to write about them. So when I'm in Ken's TV, I, there is no, I'm Marvin Hurst. When I leave Ken's TV, there's no, I'm Marvin Hurst. I'm the same person, you know, I love wings, french fries, all that kind of stuff. And just, you know, if it happens to be a high-end event and I happen to MC, then that's great. If it's a big story, then I have to cover it, that's great. You know, that's another experience I can put under the belt. But at the end of the day, I have to come home and be able to live with myself. And I couldn't live with myself if I had some kind of crazy ego. I just couldn't. Wow, and kind of credit that to... Grandmothers. Back grandmothers back in the South. Grandma keeping it real, picking okra. <laughs> <laughs> okra. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, when Do you think it's vital to have journalists of color in a city such as San Antonio that you know has a big black population, has obviously a big Latino population? Um, do you think it's important to have those voices telling these stories? I'm amazed that we don't have more. I mean, if you look at... Um, television news in particular. So if you look at the English language stations, you will see more Caucasians than mm -hmm. you do uh, Latinos mm -hmm. or African Americans. And I just don't understand how that is to be. I mean, if you look at a Houston or uh, an LA or a New York, if you look at their true number one ratings, they are the Spanish language stations. Mm -hmm. That's where people turn to to get more news than anything because that's the population. Yeah. So here it is It is completely different. I was just a little surprised that uh, San Antonio rides like that. Yeah. I really am. Really, really um, am. Was, there, did you ever, was there any point, I know for myself, uh, when I was in internet spectrum news, when I ventured TV, uh, we'd be in the locker rooms and I'd look around and I would feel uncomfortable because you know I didn't see anybody that looked like me mm -hmm. that was on the English side of the news. Mm -hmm. I remember, and it's funny, my buddy, we went to, uh, we went to SAC and um, he was my photographer at the Ranger mm -hmm. and I was the writer and I remember um, he would shoot the games, I'd write the games and he became a basically the the prodigy uh, right below the Spurs photographer so he was there around the same time I was interning with Spectrum and I remember he came up to me he's like oh so are you with Univision and I was like what wow. I was like wait in order for me to be here at the table it has to be through a you know a Spanish news station and like I I I I, I laughed at it but later on I was like man that's it's very sad that that know, he would feel that way but you should have said I wish I was <laughs> I wish I was you know what I mean um we bring a lot yeah. you know I mean diversity brings a lot to the table if you have you, you need to have different voices yeah. different I mean can you imagine the news here if we had no Hispanic journalists <laughs> can you can you imagine it out of touch news. <laughs> Out of touch news, you know, and then sometimes you wonder when you read or see certain pieces if they are truly in touch sometimes, you mm -hmm. know, because sometimes you can have people at the table, but the person who's sitting at the head of the table doesn't hear it. But um, it's good to have 
diversity. Um, I think we need it. Mm-hmm. It is required. Um, in some cases, it's mandated. I mean, if, if we didn't have that, then we wouldn't have something that's reflective of our community. Yeah, and that's what, like, I look in here, and you, know, you have Vince, and then you have um, the young woman you just met right now, and that's it. And it's like, like we have an entire East Side community, a Northeast Side community, that has a large black population with so many stories that are begging to be told that need to be told because, at some point, you know, you know, these, you know, people might die. Like, there's a woman named. Um, um, Dorothy Mundane, she lives on MLK. Mm-hmm. She decorates, she's about 80-something years old. She decorates her, her lawn every year for, for the march. Sweetest woman on the planet. And, like, um, I wrote a story on her, and it was a great story. But imagine if I don't tell that story. It's just like, man, this, this woman talked about how she used to pick cotton in West Texas. Mm-hmm. How when she arrived in San Antonio in the late 40s. She would babysit in Alamo Heights, and the one of the uh, one of the houses that she was watching over, uh, a woman, the woman that was head of the house, came home. She was drunk. She kicked her out and didn't pay her. And she, she lived on the other side of town. And she was telling these stories, the stories of her having to go to the restroom outside. And she told me this very detailed story of how she was a cook at Luby's, and that's where she was when she heard MLK being assassinated on the radio. And it's like. These are like compelling stories that need to be told, but like we don't have enough people, you know, that that care about these stories to tell them. And I feel like if you have more diversity, they care about them and they will tell them. Yeah. You know, uh, you know as well as I do, and I think we touched on it earlier, is there is a, <clears throat> there's almost a classism sometimes. Mm a classism and a colorism when it comes to news coverage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's take, for example, uh, an, for example, Anaqua Springs. So if that same scenario happened on San Antonio's east side, do you think it would have made magazines? Do you think uh, there would be the possibility of national news coverage of this story? No. It was a fascination with where they lived and who they were. If they were those same people on a different side of town, the coverage would not have been there. We both know that. That's the honest truth. Yeah. Is that something that you, um, you tell the aspiring journalists early on? That's something I tell my bosses. (laughs) Yeah. That's something I tell my bosses, and I've always been very honest with this. Early on in my career, um, my first news director wanted to send me into the black community, the, the, if you will, east side of Alexandria, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And I was, my response was, why do I have to go? Why can't I go and do this other story? And you send this particular reporter who was of a different different ethnicity. Mm-hmm. He was like, well, you know, the people relate to you better. And then I was just like, no, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. She should get the opportunity to go in so that she can learn. Mm. She has to learn too. Yeah. I have to go to all of the communities, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so, sh- so should she. 
So I think that's just as important. Um, well, you said that's who you are. You mentioned it early on in this podcast that this is who you are. You're very transparent. You're honest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that eliminates the question I was going to ask you. When did you build that confidence up? But it's like that was like since you were a kid. <laughs> they can't, they, they, well, I won't say they can't shut me up, but they can't keep me from being honest. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I see that you guys at Ken's are going in this direction of people. Mm-hmm. It's y'all's mission statement now. Yeah. Um, how proud? I mean, were you proud of that? You know, seeing that so in that direction. The the, the change um, was a a little hard for me to wrap my head around initially. Yeah. Because, uh, like most San Antonians, I'm hooked on the junk food news. Mm-hmm. Um, the crime du jour, and if it's not, uh, we weren't a bleed that leads kind of a station, but we were pretty close. Yeah. Um, there were still some, you know, good, compelling pieces coming out of there, but to step back and take a look at the community and say, okay, how much does the bad stuff really account for in this community? Mm. And. When then should we as San Antonians step up and start talking about the good things? And then so, you know, we were accused of, well, you're not doing news anymore. Well, no, that's not true. We're just doing news in a different way. Mm -hmm. We are still going to pursue some of the stories of the day, Mm -hmm. the ones that that we think warrant coverage. But... We also want to talk about the best places to eat. We want to highlight kids. We want to highlight military veterans. We want to teach you where to go and have fun outside. We want to tell you uh, what's being made in San Antonio. Uh, We want to tell you how you can improve your health. Mm -hmm. All of those things that matter to the human condition. So what people generally hear about is, you know, Brand X is the number one station because they have the most viewers. So advertisers, you and I understand this, they spend their money where the demos are, right? So Brand X is popular station, Mm -hmm. but Ken's Five has the demographics. Mm -hmm. And that is a, a direct result of us making that decision to go in a direction that affects the human condition. Like, I don't care. I mean, I don't mean it to sound harsh. I really don't care about the next accident. Yeah. I know. I can live without it. Like, is that the best thing that you could tell me at the top of the 10 o'clock news that somebody had an accident yeah. and nobody's hurt? Or somebody ran out or a drunk driver arrested for almost hitting this car? Yeah. Okay. So I work all day long. I just put my kids down. And that is the top story of the day. That is the most important thing that you can tell me. So I I, I click. I turn it off. Do you think um, with you guys going in this direction, it can help um, just the community in general and how they digest just media in general? Because I feel like, like you said, if it bleeds, you know, it leads. Mm-hmm. And that's how a lot of us are, are trained as consumers. That's what's sexy. That's what, you know, we're going to click to first. But do you think going in this direction, we can kind of kind of shift it a little bit to like, hey, like, 
these great stories are cool too. They're and they're they're great to 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 see, to witness, and to you know to to let it marinate. Um, so think about this. Uh, out of all you, you're a lifelong San Antonian, right? Yep. Okay. How many times have you witnessed not not being a journalist? How many times have you witnessed a stabbing? If we're being honest, just twice. Twice. That's okay. it. Any shootings? No. Just like you hear, and, it, and I'm only saying this in like your average person probably can't even say like they've witnessed one. And I'm only saying that because I come from one of the, I come from the 7207 zip code, one of the worst <laughs> zip codes in San <laughs> right. Antonio. Right. But uh, so I'm kind of like a unicorn. <laughs> so we 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 are more likely to see uh, a traffic accident or being in a traffic yeah. accident than we are to see shootings. We may see a fire, right? That yeah. may happen, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere in the neighborhood. So the most of our existence is dealing with the fun, good things in life other than the, you know, the regular tribulations of life, right? Yeah. So you would say your experience with San Antonio on a day-to-day basis is good. Mm-hmm. So then why doesn't why isn't it okay for your newscast to reflect what you see? Like why are you programmed to seeing everything that's bad. Yeah, and it creates this stigma. Like people, Yeah, I remember in middle school, um, I moved from the west side to the north side for a year just for my mother to get back on her feet, and then we moved back to the west side. And I remember living there, and all my friends were like, you're from the west side? Oh, my God, how many times, like, how many times were you shot at? And I'm like, never. Like, what are you talking about? Exactly. <laughs> And it's just the stuff that they hear from their parents and the stuff that they can they see on the news. I'm like, it's not that bad. I'm like, in fact, I'm more fearful of living here than I am, you know, back in my my old hood. <laughs> if anything, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but it's just funny. It's because it just stems back to what you know what we consume, and it's crazy. <laughs> and that's what the, that's what our our mission is. That's one of the things that we do in Black Journalists too, is that we want to educate people on how to consume media responsibly. Mm. That's important. What, what kind of challenges do you see? You know, you, you have um, a man who's in office who's, you know, wants to demonize the media, and then you have folks who already hate the media. Um, does that make your job more difficult, or it doesn't phase you at all? You know, there are times that you run into people and... and um, there's some resistance and, you know, yeah. uh, you realize that people don't know how to uh, deal with the media. That that becomes evident from the beginning. So uh, what I am concerned about is getting my job done. Mm-hmm. And if I have to do that in a particular way, you know, I, I have to be courteous. I have to have integrity and all of that. If they make the situation confrontational, then it becomes confrontational. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I don't seek it out, but uh, we, we will stand our ground. Yeah. You know, our forefathers thought so much of the press at that time, yeah. at that time, that they put it in Amendment 1. Mm-hmm. How many people can say that about their job description? <laughs> None, pretty like for the most part, none. So I'm not giving up that ground. 
I'm not giving up the crown. It doesn't matter to me who who's in power and yeah. who's not in power. Um, from from day to day, it it is cover it, but cover it with respect. You know, when I when I go to a murder scene, you know, I, I have to think in terms of how do I cover this story where this person has some dignity. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it doesn't it isn't offensive to the family. Where this is something they can pull up in in two weeks and two years. And it means something to them, not just, you know, they were shot, police say, blah, 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 blah. I, I want it to, to be an experience for them. Have you had anybody, um, I know if I were around that, it definitely rub off on me almost immediately because I just love absorbing things. Have you ever had anybody come up to you and tell you, like, you know, they've, the way you operate, you know, influence them to, to be better? Um, journalistically, yeah, some people along the way. Mm-hmm. I think I I probably take more credence in 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 the people whose stories I tell. Uh, there mm. was an officer you may remember him. Gosh, Norbert Ramon. Norbert Ramon. Um, he's of San Antonio. He had worked in Houston. He had cancer, and he was out. Uh, during the hurricane, rescuing people. Wow. So he had had uh, treatment to the point where there was nothing else that could be done. So his brother, um, Albert, um, talked to the family and invited me out on Norbert's last fishing trip. They wow. knew he only had, you know, a, a limited amount of time. So we go out uh, down to Rockport where they like to, to fish and... I was on Norbert's last fishing trip with him, and I thought to myself, you know, what an honor for somebody to take down that wall and trust me enough with this final situation. So we did the story, and it aired, and after it aired, they asked us if we could send them a copy so that they could play it at his funeral. Wow. So that's what I'm talking about when I mean that experience Mm -hmm. or connecting with that family or doing something in such a dignified way as a journalist um, where it's just not just nuts and bolts yeah there's a connection Uh, when did you learn that Uh, I know for me it was a couple years ago I heard Vincent Davis say that he came to my class and I've known him since I was 17 years old Um, and I remember him talking about you know we got to People's stories are fragile, and the fact that they trust us. Mm-hmm. And once he said that, it kind of baffles me when I go up to someone, hey, I'm a reporter, and then they're just like super vulnerable after that. And I'm like, I'm a stranger, and you're trust like. And I and it it, get, it makes me nervous when I'm either writing their story or whatever it is, and I put it out, and I always tell Vince or whoever I'm like. A million people can like this story, but if they don't like it, then I'm disappointed in myself because mm-hmm. it's their story. And I remember there was a kid, his name's Ramon Richards. He plays for the LA Rams. Uh, went to Brackenridge, grew up on the east side. It was a family of five. They lived in a one-bedroom apartment. There was times where they didn't have electricity. And I remember writing his story, and um, his mom was excited about it. He was excited about it. And <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. The story published. And I texted them a PDF of it, just in case they weren't subscribers. 
and I waited and I waited and I waited and then like no response after an hour and I'm like scared and sure enough they sent the text oh I loved it so much and it was a huge relief and then you know Ramon he still has it pinned on his Twitter and it just means a lot I was like that's I wrote that I wrote his story and he loved it enough to still have it there pinned I was like I don't know it's just so fulfilling and it just I don't know. It's incredible. <laughs> but you created an ex- you created an experience for him. Yeah. He was able to connect to it. And I think that most writers like yourself when you're writing, there's this voice that just starts speaking, right? And you follow the voice. Yes. And the words start coming out. So, I'm the same way. I just I follow that instinctive voice that says write it this way or take this approach or you'll write something and you'll step away from it and you'll come back and you're like, no, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. Here's a better approach, you know, but you are still finding, you're listening to your inner man, your spirit. It's telling you what to write. And as long as you follow that voice, you'll be okay. Because that voice is going to make you question some things. Like, do I really need to say that? Um, there's um, a story that I'm working on and this particular person was, was, he was killed, shot in the mouth, bullet exits the brain. So in my copy, do I really need to describe that? Yeah. Or can I just say he was shot in the head? Yeah. Same impact, right? Exactly. But at least I give him and his family some dignity without going into all the, you know, the gory details of yeah. it. I was, there was this reporter in Dallas. There was this competition called TIPA, and they had a, a, it was a workshop. He covered the Cowboys, and there was a certain um, player on the Cowboys who, his parents stole a million dollars from him, essentially. Mm-hmm. And um, he developed this relationship with a player um, enough to where he felt comfortable telling the story and he could have gone into detail about certain things but he's like well I can still tell his story and um, I'm not cheating I can still tell the story leave him with some dignity and not cheat the reader and everybody wins and uh, sure enough he put the story out and you know that Cowboys player reached out to him and was like hey I really appreciate he's like I told you this, and you could have used it, and but you didn't. You didn't have to. And I don't. Well, I had spoke to a, another reporter from here about that, and um, they're like, "Yeah, you don't need all that fat Mm-mm. on your story." And it's not like we're we're cheating the reader or the viewer. It is. I'll use this analogy. Mm-hmm. So you're building a house, and you have all these materials, and and the house is built, but you still have all these scraps. So then do you take the scraps and just because you have them, attach them to this beautiful house? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Do you, do you really need that? Or just if the house is built nicely, people like the way it looks, it makes them feel a particular way, I don't need to, okay, I got all of this extra stone. <laughs> you know, where, where do I, I'm just going to put it up on the doors because I have it. You know what I mean? Or I got this extra wood. Let me just, you know, build something across the window because I have it. No, you don't have to. Wow. It's it's. Um, you mentioned the gentleman. You were on the last fishing trip with him. And um, the one thing that you know, stuck out is 
he was battling cancer. You had to fight that battle. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like for you initially? Um, it was, uh, I've been looking for a different word other than surreal. And I don't think I've been able to, to find it. I know that it happened and then some days it feels like it, it didn't happen. Um, almost a year ago in December, I got the diagnosis and went through the treatment and, you know, about five months and, um, I missed maybe three days from work, two for putting in a port and taking a port out and one because I just, it was too painful. I couldn't talk. Um, but it was an experience that made me live life more on purpose. I knew Mm -hmm. that essentially, again, what I was going through was not for me. It was for other people. Mm -hmm. So it was very important for me never to waver with my faith and to stay on focus to, to cross the finish line. I knew I was going to cross the finish line. I knew it wouldn't be easy. Um, radiation was a beast uh, at some times. You know, um, mashed potatoes became my, my best friend. And throughout it all, I still did, I still did a food segment. Which is just amazing to me because sometimes I would get home and I couldn't taste a freaking thing. And then I get to the restaurant and I the flavor profiles were there. Wow. And I don't know if it was the restaurants that I chose or whatever. I, I could taste it. I just never got to a point where I went there and I had to smack food and lie, you know. Yeah. Um, so it was good. I did some of my um, some good work while I was pushing myself through there. We did the officer involved shooting uh, on two one seven Robert Street, which won an Emmy last night for uh, for crime feature. It sure did. Congrats! I was I broke into tears last night. I, like I could not stop crying for twenty minutes, and I don't know if that was the result of everything taking into realization everything that I had been through and what it meant coming into the audio booth that night on a Saturday night and just cups of water. And it took me almost well over an hour to track a piece that I should have done in 10 or 15 minutes, but just starting over and forcing my voice out when the day before I couldn't talk at all. So all of those things um, really mattered to me. And I guess that's why I cried so much. I really oh. did. I, cry. I could not stop crying. Um, you talked about your platform and how you, know, you, you, you understand your platform. You're not naive to it. And you understand that when you speak, people feel they're influenced by it. They're, mm-hmm. they're moved by whatever it is that you have to say. Um, you're a survivor as of was the summer? As of this summer. Uh, what was that feeling like? I saw the video up and it popped up on my TL on Twitter. I, you know what? I just, I, I felt it going in. Spiritually, I felt it going in. I was a little anxious when the doctor came in because I wanted to hear the words. And then, you know, there's always the devil going, well, what if it's not? He told people that it is. And, you know, mm. just that back and forth. And so my doctor comes in and, you know, in his very 
southerly way. Marvin, I just wanted to tell you that you were cancer free. <laughs> and so it was, uh, it made me really happy. I just, I thought, you know, what a way to overcome. And I was like, okay, we got to wrap this up because I got to get back to work, sir. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a journalist. I love it. <laughs> right, I got a 10 o'clock story. <laughs> Can we do all this dictation stuff and you just send me the notes? You know what I mean? <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Well, that's, I mean, what's that been? Five months already? Six months? Mm-hmm. Um, what's life been like since then? I mean, you just won your award last night. It was super emotional for you. I'm wondering what do I what do I do next? You know what what is my responsibility going forward? I think that's what I'm I'm trying to to figure out. Um, God has been good, you know. Just like in love, uh, what's love got to do with it? You know, Tina Turner was mm-hmm. in court and she gave up everything to Ike Turner. She said, I "Just want my name." And so I uh, now that I have a good name, mm-hmm. a good name. I just want to make sure that I use my name wisely. Wow. Um, I usually give people the floor to say whatever they want. Um, I call it the talking, talk your ish segment. So you can, you know, praise whatever you can rant or whatever it is. Uh, um, I, I think if I had one thing, um, going back to, to the Emmy, I was, um, that story represented so much to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about, classism, colorism, Mm. when it comes to journalism. And I was very surprised in this town that an unarmed kid was shot at an officer-involved shooting and the lack of coverage on it. I thought uh, that the media failed Mm. to do its job. I really did. I, I was just like, well, Wait a minute. It sounds like a bad episode of 1001 Ways to Die. How does a bullet go through somebody's buttocks and shoot somebody in the chest and we're okay with it because they they carefully craft the story. They being the San Antonio police, they carefully craft the story around the house and the offenses at the house. There was not an offense at that house that night. They were investigating the possibility of an offense, mm-hmm. but one was never established at that house. So then you get, you know, uh, the DA who has the power to indict or not indict, and, you know, he says he presented evidence. Uh, grand jury is a secret situation, proceedings. We'll never know whatever evidence he presented or did not present. But Officer Steve Casanova is cleared, and we have to respect that. But then who is held criminally responsible for the death of Charles Roundtree? No one. Because, see, a jury decided that Devontae Snowden, the suspect in this case, did not have a gun. So if he did not have a gun, and that's the reason the officers say he fired... And something in that equation is wrong. Mm-hmm. So we have a young man, and I don't care what color he is. Yeah. I don't care where he lives in this town. If we are willing to accept that as the norm, then we are in trouble. Mm-hmm. We are in trouble. I don't want to 
to even insinuate that we need to tie the hands of our police officers because I respect them. They are a great department. They are formidable and fierce. I support what they do. But at the same time, my job is to hold the powerful Mm -hmm. accountable. And in this case, I don't think they're being held accountable. And they know that. Wow. Um, Where can folks find you? Um, either at church, <laughs> behind the audio board, uh, at church, or no, seriously, they can find me um, at Ken's Five. I'm generally, I'm, you know, I'm really into this new segment I have called Kids Who Make San Antonio Great, and it's just highlighting kids who do phenomenal things. That is awesome. They just, I'm just amazed at some of the stuff that kids do because I'm like, what was I doing? Exactly. There's so <laughs> many, they quit. I was like, I wasn't doing that at 11. At 11, you They're know like, what I mean? What? They are killing. So I'm really uh, happy that we're doing that series. That's on Tuesdays. Of course, Neighborhood Eats is on Thursdays. And I get a chance to have a little fun on Saturday mornings as the anchor. And other than that, you know, special reports out in the community, meeting folks having a good time just trying to be a good San Antonian social media handles Um, MH guy at MH guy for Instagram uh, at MH Hurst Kins 5 for Twitter and you just have to look me up on Facebook you can either I get a lot of people requesting friendship requests on my personal page. I never get to those. <laughs> it is much easier to click me on my professional page. And that doesn't mean that I won't friend you. It just means I just go, oh my God, so this is like 30 It's overwhelming. Or yeah, 30 or 40 people. Who are these people? Let me find out. And so it takes me a while to kind of go through and investigate who some of the people are. Awesome. Well, you guys can find me at Sports Guy Wholesale on Twitter and Instagram. That wraps it up for episode 16. This was amazing. Thank you.